we're really excited to host Andrew Hines of Canvas Medical. Andrew Hines is realizing his vision to design a better model for digital care delivery. As the founder and CEO of Canvas Medical, Andrew and his team build software and APIs to power collaboration between caregivers and developers. And the best new digital health companies trust Canvas Medical for their success. Prior to Canvas Medical, Andrew Heights created one of the largest real-time analytics tools in healthcare at Practice Fusion and led large-scale data science teams in the advertising and travel industries. Andrew holds an MS degree in management science and engineering from the Stanford School of Engineering. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So here on the Pulse podcast, we have a tradition of asking our guests to surprise our listeners with something that they may not know about you. Can you share something interesting about your background? My first company was started at the age of 13 and was uh, in an, an unusual industry, surfboard manufacturing. I was an amateur surfer in high school. You know, one thing I really enjoyed more than surfing itself actually was uh, the craft and, and the science of building the equipment. So came up with a new technology using computer-aided design systems to manufacture surfboards with robots. Um, what that did was let us incrementally improve the performance of, of boards over time. Uh, the company was called Apex Precision Surfboards, which should give you a sense of the brand we were going for. Uh, but we supported professional surfers and, uh, to help them sort of push the limits of performance. And so still, you know, fortunately, I have time to surf today. Don't make surfboards anymore, but uh, surf as often as I can. That's incredible. I didn't know that there was surfing in the Bay Area. San Francisco is uh, is not a secret, but not a uh, not what you think of when you think of Surf City, uh, USA. So, given your kind of early start in entrepreneurship, I'm curious to understand how you were motivated to start Canvas Medical. So, whether you always fostered this entrepreneurship edge, and also how you pivoted into the healthcare industry. You know, it's there wasn't like a flash of of insight or a, a sudden sort of lifelong commitment that just, you know, I woke up with one morning. It was a slow process um, of sort of becoming infatuated or falling in love with a problem. Um, and it started with back in 2011, I think if I have the, the year right, my partner, uh, who's a family nurse practitioner, uh, she was in school at Johns Hopkins and I saw her using EMRs and, and health IT systems and was just fascinated by how they worked and how they didn't work, really. And over time, that took a greater and greater personal toll for us, for her, and for us as a family. Um, so that you know led me to sort of dig in and understand. You know, it was led by that empathy for her, but wanted to understand why the systems worked the way they did. And then that uncovered the second half of the motivation, which was really the data problem underneath all of it. Right, the clinical data, healthcare data from an administrative perspective, super complicated. Uh, and there's a huge opportunity for us to to sort of tame that complexity and increase the rate at which we improve clinical medicine. And so there's this big sort of societal cost of the lost opportunity of making improvements faster. Uh, and so those two things together, just you know, addressing that personal pain and then capitalizing on the opportunity to move medicine forward more quickly with technology, that was the motivation. And it took, you know, that took three or four years to really jump in. But I, you know, once you can't, if you're going to bed thinking about it and waking up thinking about it, you know it's time. 
And can you set the context for our listeners in terms of what the healthcare industry, in terms of handling big data, different interoperability between systems looked like at the time when you were thinking about starting Canvas? It was an exciting time in a lot of ways. Uh, we were a few years into the High Tech Act, which was 32-ish billion dollars of taxpayer money going into funding the adoption of uh, EMRs or EHRs, as folks say. Um, so that was exciting. There was in 2014. Uh, I it was just before starting Canvas. I was actually working for another EMR company, and there was just a lot happening. Flatiron had just announced the acquisition of Alto Solutions, and so the notion that you could really there was a business there and there was real innovation to be had around clinical data was, was very top of mind for everyone. At the same time, it was, you know, that was exciting, but it was also a terrible time to start a health IT company because there was so much competition. The market was, you know, the green field or open space was vanishing, right? People, there were hundreds of competitors. You know, it was sort of just, uh, a, you know, the problem drew me in, the timing was not optimal. And it was very clear from, you know, the first year or two of, of talking with investors and industry folks that uh, there was really the go-to-market as an EMR was not there. The good news though, is our focus, you know, EMR is just sort of, um, it's not the goal, right? It's something that you need to do to deliver the value. Uh, certainly we believe that, but our focus on that end user pain in this solving the system level waste due to poor data quality, we were able to take a step forward as an app on another EMR right off the bat. And so that gave us a toehold to start experimenting and, and testing our hypotheses on, on how we could create a better experience for users and also higher quality data for the system at large. Given the complex, and it sounds like beginning to get quite saturated health IT system at the time, what made you want to actually start your own business versus working within some of the companies that you already had some experience at to kind of innovate within an existing system? It's a great question, you know, and that is definitely the default or should be, I think, the default answer, right? Is find a team that's working on the problem that you've fallen in love with and then like, you know, push and, and join the ranks. And I had tried that and it just, there were constraints on the business, right? And this is, especially as a technical founder, right? You're thinking about, how you can solve a problem. And then there's the larger question of how do you build an important, meaningful business around that? And I found that there was misalignment in sort of the, the end user problem solving approach and the sort of economic objectives and the business model supporting the efforts to solve those end user problems. And so when you have that misalignment, it's really difficult to prioritize the things that matter. Uh, and so that that really was sort of the tipping point to taking a step out as an entrepreneur. And when you touch upon your customers, I'm curious how you thought about that, especially at the beginning when you're talking to investors. And I'm sure they're asking about your commercialization model. It sounds like in this case, you're thinking actually about the clinicians. So I'm thinking about your anecdote with your wife and others who are actually intimately working within these systems and realizing all the inefficiencies and waste. But I'm curious how you would kind of characterize your, your customers, at least when you were thinking about Canvas Medical? Well, early on, you know, and this has been the journey of the business is experimenting with different go-to-markets, right? The, the core product uh, or core problem that the product solves has not changed. It's always been about supporting better patient outcomes, higher quality clinical care. Uh, and the way that we've done that has evolved over time as we've experimented with different go-to-markets. Uh, back in, you know, 2015, there were relatively few new entrant care delivery companies. 
And software engineers weren't really a, a key part of those teams, right? They were largely uh, business and marketing organizations and clinical organizations. So as the sort of industry has evolved and the rate of new entrants has dramatically increased in large part catalyzed by COVID, you know, the way we commercialize and, and realize the value from the product has now changed to be a one step back in the value chain, right? Where we are absolutely focused still on the end users, which are largely clinicians, but we do that through software engineers at our customer organizations who are really working in dyad form with the clinicians delivering care. We can't be experts on every care model. We can't be experts in, in kidney care and migraine care and pediatric mental health care, right? It, but what we can do is support all of those clinical and developer dyads with the right tooling to help them go faster and, and sort of uh, you know, maximize the return on their investments in their technology. So that's been the big evolution in how we commercialize the core uh, innovations at Canvas. That's really interesting when you think about kind of pivoting and finding that niche in the value chain. Is this similar to what other kind of emerging EHR or other sort of health IT systems are doing as well? Or is this actually a point of differentiation from the go-to-market model? I think everyone is seeing that developers are playing a bigger and bigger role in care delivery. And, you know, for me as a patient, as a member of a society, uh, as, a, as an industry sort of observer, that is the best news that we could possibly have, right? Uh, we need to move a whole lot faster in terms of how software impacts care, how it scales knowledge, how it helps folks work together more efficiently, especially in the face of uh, a major challenge around healthcare workers and the supply of, of talent in the industry. Um, and so software really, and in the role of developers in particular, can really help sort of create that productivity or manufacture capacity out of thin air, right? And so I think everyone sees that. Now, the question is how you address that problem, right? And it's, it's such a broad surface area. When you think about everything required to deliver care, everything from identifying patients, creating awareness among those patients, enrolling them, registering them, doing intake, performing interventions and diagnostics safely, doing follow-up, getting payment. It's, you know, it's a dozen different product categories, potentially. Now, a lot of the new entrants here are taking it in that spot solution sort of approach, which makes a lot of sense because it's just really hard. It takes a lot of capital and a lot of time to build out a really broad platform. So the new entrants tend to be more developer-friendly because they're seeing the developers as a key stakeholder, but they can't, they don't have the breadth of the legacy players, right? A new care delivery company can't just stand up and start seeing patients using some of these new entrant spot solutions. Now, at the same time, the legacy players, they have the breadth, but they don't have the depth. They don't serve the developers in the way that they need to be served. The systems aren't extensible uh, and developers don't have the control that they need to bring their care models to life, right? And so for us having, you know, for better or worse, right, we have spent years developing a specialized asset focused on developers in part because that's our DNA as a company. And so we've effectively uh, revealed our internal developer capabilities to the market. And we find ourselves in a position where we have the depth of incumbents, but the, uh, you know, the breadth to replace them. Here, I'm interested to understand too, when you mentioned sort of these legacy systems, how you think about how where Canvas fits into that. So are you looking to recruit new customers or is it really about converting 
legacy or you know institutional players that are relying on these legacy systems to really get some adoption in the marketplace. We're focused on new entrants. Now, the fascinating thing is new entrants are coming from many different places and they take many different forms. The one thing they have in common is they all have developers as a core member of their team and a core stakeholder in this platform technology platform decision. So new entrants might be, and in many cases for us, they are incumbent organizations, whether they're payers or providers who are launching new innovation initiatives to take better care of a specific population. And so we absolutely support that case. It's not a switch. We're not switching folks off of Epic or Cerner onto Canvas, but it's those organizations saying, hey, we can, we can compete better if we develop a new care delivery organization and we're going to build that on Canvas. Of course, then there's all the venture-funded you know, new entrants and those take a sort of a different way of working with them, but you know, that's very much uh, the core of our customer base now. And then we're seeing increasingly, and this is, I think, very exciting and I think a really good sign for care delivery in general, we're seeing a longer tail of small businesses that are funded with banks or funded with friends, you know, bootstrapped that are accomplished clinicians that have had enough of working for the integrated delivery network in the region. Uh, they have felt unsupported. They feel like the system is unsustainable. And they are becoming entrepreneurs and standing up their small practices on Canvas with a real focus on digital care delivery. Uh, and so supporting them, I think, is going to be a big part of our future. It's not a huge part now, but we want to see that long tail really grow uh, in a way sort of akin to Shopify, right? They, there are businesses doing you know, great in terms of e-commerce on Shopify that never would have been able to enter e-commerce without a platform like Shopify. So that's, you know, I think there are roughly 150,000 practices in the U.S. right now. They last about 30 years. That means we're seeing just steady state replacement. It's 400 new starts a month, right? We're seeing 500 and 1,000 right now. It is morning time for delivering care in the United States. Can you provide a overview for our listeners of all the different offerings and services Canvas Medical provides and how maybe that's evolved since your germination point to where it is in present state? One way to think about Canvas is an integrated care delivery environment for digital health developers. Now, uh, let me unpack that a little bit. The integrated part is really speaking to the folks who use the platform. You've got developers, you've got clinicians, you've got operations staff, schedulers, et cetera, and then the financial team, the billers, coders, and the like. And Canvas offers software for every single type of user. We've got the APIs and software development kits to help the developers you know, build their patient-facing experiences and integrate them into the care team workflows. We've got the user interfaces for the EMR, for scheduling, for order entry and results analysis, document management, claim submission, eligibility verification, you name it, even patient invoicing and subscription management. So it's really a comprehensive set of technology tools and software that's all designed to work together in, in sort of a coherent, uh, with a coherent data model underneath, which is so important because that allows the developers to automate across those different sections of the workflows. Going back to what you said about kind of this long tail of the smaller, more bootstrapped companies, it sounds like 
perhaps you see kind of a bigger role of Canvas Medical as kind of also supporting some of these more grassroots organizations as well. How do you balance that with potential commercialization or sort of profit motives, especially now that you have investors after the Series A and other growth ambitions that may not always be on the same page as also supporting some of these smaller businesses? There are, I think, a couple questions to unpack there or implications. And this is such an important topic that I think healthcare writ large wrestles with. If we look at the past couple of years of venture capital into digital health, it's a huge number. 30 billion last year, 15 year before, 14, 15 year before. And even so, it pales in comparison to the balance sheets of the largest health systems in the country. Uh, and so it's really a question for all of us, not just about the ones that are backed by you know, venture capital. And that's, you know, folks will talk about, and I'm sure you've heard this, um, this phrase, no margin, no mission, right? And it sort of speaks to the fact that, yes, you have to run a financially sustainable business uh, to be able to make you know, to deliver on your mission for, for providing care. And so for us, you know, I think it's really about setting up the incentives correctly. I mentioned this earlier around like some of the challenges I saw in, in health tech companies I've worked with in the past, making sure that your incentives are, are lined up and that, you know, your customer's care model and their way of doing business is lined up with yours and, you have the right guardrails in place to make sure that patient experience and clinical quality are where they need to be. And if you can line those up in the right way, then it just becomes an outcome by matter of course, right? I think if those are not aligned from the, from the outset, it's just a matter of time before you get bad outcomes. Uh, so it's this kind of, you know, for better or worse, you got to get it right at the outset. Um, and then you're going to operate in a way that's consistent with those incentives. And then, you, you know, you might have a chance to refactor the incentives over time, but it's, it's difficult. And you described, too, the market landscape you're working with now, especially with trends following COVID, of a lot of entrants coming into the space. I'm thinking even some of the institutional players like an Epic or Cerner also thinking about ways that they can kind of respond to some of the entrants into the market. How do you think about building customer adoption? And I want to talk, you know, one about kind of these enterprising new venture capital funded or bootstrapped companies, but also how you attract adoption with institutional players. It's changed over time, you know, at the, and the journey really matters here, right? The, the adoption of a core system of record and system of work is a massive sort of company defining bet, right? When whether you're a large health system and you're trying to choose between Epic and Cerner or a homegrown system and, you know, decommissioning that moving to something from a vendor or a venture funded company making a bet on canvas, right? This is, it's a huge decision. So for us, you know, getting adoption has always really reduced to trust, right? How do we build trust with these organizations? And there's really no replacement for, for time. So getting to know the teams, our track record over the years, and, and our focus on clinical quality, on safety, our way of working with customers as partners, right? There's, there's no shortcut for it. And, and, and I think that really leaning into that and, you know, the network effects of that trust are essential to increasing adoption over time. For the incumbents, you know, I think a lot of folks, 
you know, there's no world where, like I said before, we're, we're not replacing platforms inside hospital systems or um, integrated delivery networks. We're an option for them if they want to diversify their portfolio in terms of care delivery. Um, and so, you know, there it's, it sort of works the same way, right? They're, they're looking for, you know, comprehensive solutions to the needs that that particular org has. Uh, and they look at the options and Canvas sort of floats up to the top, uh, given where we are right now. I know we touched upon different customers and potential customer needs across kind of the incumbents and, and new players. Curious on the technical side, if Canvas kind of customizes solutions based on every single end user or client, or if the product is actually more general and there's only sort of incremental tweaks that are made based on specific customer demands. Such an important question. And, you know, I think this gets at the heart of one of the core differentiators for how we approach, you know, building a care modeling system. Even the notion that Canvas, yes, we have an EMR, but the problem we're solving is really helping folks formalize and improve over time, continuously improve their care model. Um, And the way that we do that is through the software development kit. And that enables developers at our customer organization to define intake flows, to define diagnostic workups, to define treatment options, standards of care that might otherwise live literally in a Microsoft Word document on a SharePoint drive that no one looks at for two years. Uh, And they become living parts of the software uh, with feedback loops and regular reviews. And that's really a powerful tool that we had always built into the system and then sort of more recently have exposed to our to our customers and their developers. And so that way of working with Canvas has replaced what you might think of as quote unquote customization, right? Where you go to an administrative screen and you've got some checkboxes and some dropdowns and some toggles and you're like, I want this to be red, not orange. And I want these five options, not these three options. We've gone way, way deeper into the actual programmatic definition of what a care model is. And tying this to, this is maybe one step, you you might want to clip there and put this somewhere else, but like the, for that long tail of largely physician entrepreneurs that tend to be kind of technical, they might dabble a little bit in, in programming here and be able to use the workflow kit, which is what we call our software development kit, uh, to define clinical protocols. We're working on graphical user interfaces, what we call the protocol editor, for folks to be able to do that in a broader population, you know, beyond just developers. If I could play that back, it sounds like different from legacy systems, which may be more of a one-way system of communication where it's essentially the, the health system or whoever the client is telling the software developer what they want. Now it sounds like Canvas is actually creating and facilitating a two-way feedback loop where you're also influencing the way that practitioners think about care because you're providing them perhaps new data operability opportunities or just new ways of rearranging their workflow to actually improve end care for the patient. Is that kind of a fair way of understanding Canvas Medical? 100% correct. Yeah. And then in the best new care delivery organizations, they have created these, you know, what I think is going to, this is the dream team for uh, ambulatory medicine is these dyads of developers and clinicians where they can iterate really, really fast. I mean, think about it. People go to med school for four years or five years or six years if they do a fellowship to learn just about one specific specialty. And then, you know, we say, oh yeah, 
you know, an EMR is going to support a hundred different specialties and we're going to give you some check boxes to make some differences because yeah, they're different, but the difference is limited to, you know, a half dozen check boxes on a customization screen. Like it's kind of a preposterous notion, right? Um, and so now we have the ability for software engineers to go with clinicians into that level of depth and competence and start to scale this up. Again, back to the sort of background industry situation right now, where we have massive excess demand and a huge problem on supply of talent, right? The only way we're going to dig out of this as an industry is to be able to do more with what we've got. And, and software developers are just a huge part of that. What I find really interesting about what you're sharing is you're kind of breaking the dichotomy between back office and front office. I think traditionally when you think about health IT or IT at any organization, it always seems to be confined to kind of this black box where no one really knows what's happening. But in kind of your description of this dream team of software developers working hand in hand with practitioners on the front line to develop real time workflows that are responsive to new and emerging patient needs, it really sounds like kind of a merging of the holistic system into solutions that are able to be more adaptable and responsive. That's right. And it's a reflection of, I think, broadly how technology has moved the world forward over the last 40 years. You know, my five-year-old is learning how to code. And, you know, it's, we're all sort of able to do more. We have superpowers because of the software and it's been late coming to, to care delivery. Uh, but now, you know, the time has certainly come. Is there an example that you've experienced or a success story from some of your clients that kind of illustrates this dual way of working where you really marry the software aspect along with the frontline practitioner aspect? We've seen it everywhere. I mean, we, in the early days of COVID, we had a customer develop two COVID protocols, one for screening on site and one for population health outreach campaign uh, that was targeted at folks with higher risk, right? So elderly, you know, seniors that have that had multiple chronic conditions, uh, folks with autoimmune conditions, and they were able to define this protocol, deploy it into their environment, execute mass outreach through Canvas in a matter of days, right? And that was, you know, an early indication of, of seeing the power. Of course, that's sort of a black swan event or certainly felt like it. It was a great example. I think the more, the more everyday cases are folks that are able to, in their patient-facing application, complete a clinical intake process and that data come in in structured, computable ways that then triggers the diagnostic workup or the triage up from what might have been an appointment scheduled three or four days out that now needs to be a clinician calling this person the next three hours, right? Those are examples of just live protocols that exist today that our customers have worked on. I think we're really just scratching the surface in terms of how these can be composed into what we're all after, which is the highest quality care delivery system on the planet. And do you share these protocols that customers develop across customers? I'm thinking there's kind of the tension of wanting to keep proprietary workflows potentially, but then also this huge mandate within healthcare broadly of delivering the most value and promoting efficiencies that I would imagine can scale and experience similar network effects. So network effects is, is the hope, right? That there will be a rising of the tide here or rather this, this high tide will, will lift all boats, whatever the expression is. 
We ourselves do not share any of the source code that our customers develop on Canvas. I think there is an opportunity and there's a world that we absolutely will support where you know, our customers are voluntarily sharing the workflows that they develop. When they do that, how they do that, I think we're gonna we're gonna figure that out as a community, as an ecosystem. You know, I think there's there's a world where this becomes this has a real impact not just on care delivery, but on research, on with clinical trials, on drug development, general standards of practice, right? Canvas being cited in in a textbook in five to ten years is is not an unrealistic expectation, right? I think that the in the same way that Benchling, as an example, has accelerated research and development in the life sciences, what's the analogy for the clinical practice of medicine? How do we have a similar acceleration here? And that's that's sort of, you know, absent the commercial strategy around it, that's what we're after. That's really fascinating when you talk about potentially unlocking these secondary benefits about promoting research and and adding to the thought leadership within the industry. I think oftentimes you find that different areas might be siloed, but in a future state, hopefully not that far away, if Canvas can kind of aggregate or be one of the catalysts for that type of cross-company or you know, cross-discipline discussion, I think it has huge potential for really unlocking some additional insights or research. And I think it has, it's a huge opportunity for our customers, right? These are their patients, is their data. Right, the the opportunity to participate in a broader value chain in healthcare is something that we're really excited to support and make available to them, and not capture for us. That value is not for us. That value is for them. I think our tooling can be an amazing advantage to do a better job, where it's not just, hey, we're going to do a real world evidence analysis, static, you know, ex post of what happened over the last twelve months to a specific patient population, but rather, we have a hypothesis. We're going to run an experiment. We're going to define different care models, different workflows. We're going to see what happens. We're going to do it with IRB approval. Uh, there's, there's a group um, at RAND that has been doing this for years, you know, the behavioral economics research on clinical workflows inside of, of course, the EMR, because that's the system of record. That's where work happens in care delivery. And the impacts are massive. So what could we do as an industry working together to move that knowledge forward and advance some of these objectives like faster uh, drug development? Now, shifting to looking kind of in the immediate term to a bit further down into the future, some time has passed since Canvas has closed your Series A funding round. What are some of your goals and you know, how has Canvas executed against the near-term goals post-Series A and kind of what are your growth ambitions? There's really, there's no way to answer that question uh, beyond just like, we, we want to be the system of record for ambulatory medicine in the United States. I mean, frankly, the, uh, the world. I think it's a, it, that's a long journey. You know, our core purpose, our North Star here is to foster this competition, right, in care delivery, right? I think that growth for us is 100% tied to growth in the number of new entrants and the amount of experiments folks are running in terms of business models and care models, it's time to hit the reset button. It's absolutely happening. Like I said, steady state, you know, new entrant rate is about 400 a month. We're seeing between 500 and 1,000 right now. That's going to continue. Our real growth ambition is to power every single one of those new entrants so that they can run, you know, bring their care model to life in the market. 
um, and experiment with different business models. So we can ultimately kind of figure out how those commercial models impact quality of care and, and really let a thousand flowers bloom here um, and let the magic of the markets and competition, you know, do its work um, and get to the best configuration of how care is delivered, right? We, we're not talking about a small change. We are talking about a fundamental refactoring of how and where people get care. Um, and so that process of innovation over the next 10, 20, 30 years is one where our growth ambition is really to be not just a support the majority of those entities, but be a driving force to accelerate that and bring it to bear sooner. Now, we're still at the beginning of the year. And I'm curious, when you look ahead into the rest of this year, where do you see some of the biggest trends in the U.S. healthcare system? You know, I think uh, Bessemer probably had the uh, most notable write-up for these, these predictions. I think, you know, the rush towards telehealth is, has been absolutely necessary and is going to be sort of enriched with a reassessment of growth uh, in, with in-person care, right? The notion of a hybrid approach is going to be a big theme for 2022. Uh, and the folks that are really good at doing both, I think, are going to have a real competitive advantage. You know, we're going to see, hopefully, some resolution around some regulatory uncertainty this year. The TEFCA, of course, you know, was um, sort of launched, uh, announced just last week, I think it was, or the week before. So that's super exciting. It's just, this is going to be, you know, as blockbuster of a year as 2021 was in terms of venture capital. I think in terms of execution and operation, 2022 is going to be even bigger. As a organization that sees a whole gamut of different business model innovations across the sector, so things around value-based care, direct-to-consumer, et cetera, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what your perspective is on all these different business model proliferations in the healthcare sector, and where do you see business models being particularly successful or falling short? It's tough to know the conditions uh, for sure, but the goal, I think, is just to get more experimentation, right? And they also, you know, these models have real big impacts on one another. If we think about direct-to-consumer and the success it's had with the Rose and Hymns of the world, that was I think in large part due to high deductible health plans and the increased consumer cost share, making consumerism, uh, you know, more of a factor in the way that healthcare was consumed uh, in the U.S. So, what the impact is ultimately on quality, right? And there have been questions raised about quality and direct to consumer care, which I think are appropriate and apply to any business model, right? Fee for service and value based, just the same, right? We saw sort of a landmark series, two-part series of articles in health affairs around you know, the money machine, right? Uh, Medicare Advantage and risk adjustment and what that's doing in terms of distorting care delivery. Um, so there are questions. There's no perfect business model here. There are clear parameters that make one more appropriate than another. Take in value-based care, attribution is the question of the day. How do we attribute you know, who's responsible for costs and how do we attribute outcomes to any one uh, provider or provider group is such a difficult question and you know, makes sense when you have a pretty broad scope of, of care um, and a very clear individual or practice that you can attribute to. But there's a lot of unanswered questions, right? Uh, we don't know ultimately what the impact is on serving self-insured employers or serving direct consumer or fee-for-service medicine. We need folks to uh, combine them. We need folks to 
uh, evolve, measure, right, and, and, and take steps in new directions so that we can uh, figure this out. One really exciting thing with new entrants is their willingness to do this. Right? They very often start with direct to consumer. They might acquire customers directly. Initially, those customers might pay directly. The next step is still to acquire customers directly, but then build their insurance. So now they've moved into that fee-for-service revenue model, even though their marketing or customer acquisition strategy is still direct. Over time, you get enough patience with a payer. Uh, you might look at adding quality bonuses on top of, of that fee-for-service revenue. And so I think the new entrants are really being creative about you know, how they create growth in their businesses and exploring these different uh, models. And I know that you recently released a white paper about how startups can think about how to structure their tax stack to kind of support the various business models that they're experimenting. Are there any highlights or key takeaways that you can share with our listeners from that white paper? I think there's, um, there's a set of questions that should be answered first, right? And, and forgetting about technology for now, it's really about getting clear on what your care model is. And so we lay out the elements of care modeling, the seven elements of care modeling, and uh, would suggest that that's the first step to really answer those questions clearly and then get to a pragmatic uh, you know, set of steps to choose technology uh, in a way that helps you get started. Right? And uh, this is all going to depend on your, the amount of capital, the type of talent you have, you know, the business model you're pursuing at the outset. But the, the most important step, I believe, is to formalize your care model and then identify those risks or core differentiators that are really worth investing in. And then that gives you the advantage of knowing what you can just sort of get by with and really target your capital on investments that are going to have the highest return and help you compete uh, against both incumbents and the other new entrants that are you know, also besieging the market. And what are some of the biggest mistakes you see new entrants making as they think about their care model or evolving the tech to support their care model? You know, this is probably just a result of human nature, but it is extremely difficult to estimate the resource requirements for, for building technology safely. And it, it, that last word is really important. The, we don't hack together health information technology. Right? You build it thoughtfully and you put checks in place and the overall cost, forget about the regulatory requirements of HIPAA and the like, but just the responsible approach to developing health IT is more akin to avionics than you know, consumer applications. And so that can lead to a lot of uncertainty around what it actually takes to build the technology. And, and we just naturally underestimate um, and tend to value control more over, and, and that, that sort of plays into or exacerbates this underestimation problem. So that we've seen that happen quite a bit. And we've seen people make really painful decisions 12, 18 months out from choosing a tech stack, but then realizing that they are now having to pour way more capital into their technology than they thought. And instead of continuing down that path, you know, pushing the reset button and going with Canvas. And that's, that can make sense if you're there. I would hope everyone you know, doesn't have to get there, right? And makes the right choice. Especially with kind of information breaches for even established companies like a Twitter or the U.S. government, it seems that data security, especially when it comes to healthcare-related personally identifiable data is top of mind. 
Do you see that becoming a growing concern for new entrants and even incumbent players as they think about what tech stack just makes sense to best support their operations? Without a doubt. You know, and, and I think that is, that's one primary uh, requirement. The other is around patient safety, right? Data security, data privacy, patient privacy, one category. Another category is around patient safety. And, you know, that has many different ways that it manifests. Not, it's not about breaches per se. It's about timeliness and accuracy and completeness of data that's used to make clinical decisions and, and decisions on, about interventions that come with risk. Um, and so being thoughtful about how the technology, and we talk about this in the white paper, right? How does this technology en- enhance my visibility into patient safety risks or limit my visibility into patient safety risks? And, you know, because that, that's really what it comes down to, right? Is having a culture that prioritizes patient safety and having systems that give you that visibility and the feedback so that you can learn from mistakes when they happen. Uh, and this is just part and parcel of delivering medicine. Now, in our last part of the show, many of our listeners are interested in starting their careers in healthcare and potentially even starting their own companies. As an entrepreneur yourself, curious to hear if you have any general learnings that you have from being an entrepreneur that you can share with our listeners. You know, there's all the sort of cliche advice. So much of it, I think, is cliche because it's largely true. The resilience that it takes, I think, in any industry, but especially in healthcare, is, you know, is extraordinary. And invest in that resilience. Invest in all the stuff, you know, the, the vitamins of entrepreneurship, the sleep, you know, getting the support. It's a long journey, right? Uh, even in the best case, it's a long journey. To create something enduring and important it's going to take, you know, decades plus. And, and healthcare is, is just, you know, the most important, in my perspective, the most important industry. And so it carries with it all of that, that extra weight. Um, I think in healthcare in particular, and I'm sure this is, this is always top of mind for, uh, you know, for talented entrepreneurs, but the clarity on the users and the difference between that and the buyers, right? The incentives in healthcare are bananas. They're all over the place. And it's worth that extra intellectual honesty on why would someone buy this? How does my solution solve an important and difficult problem in a simple way that appeals to a rational economic buyer? Right? That is not an easy question to answer. Um, the other thing is, it's just, you know, and Bob Sutton over at Stanford, the author of the no asshole rule, he coined this term strong opinions, weekly held, right? And, you know, putting that into practice and being willing to make a pivot, whether it's on the product side or on the market side, you got to change something about how you think about solving the problem or maybe change who you're focusing on that, that has the problem, you know, is if you're having doubts, there is no doubt, right? Pull the trigger, make the change, run the experiment, and that'll really compress. Even though it is a long haul, it'll, it'll change, you know, instead of 20 years, it'll be 10 years to get to the outcome you want. And as a technical founder, how did you think about building a team around you that could really take Canvas Medical from a technical solution and amplify it from a commercialization perspective and a general sort of evolution of the product and offering? Step one is to you know, break as many of your own boundaries as you possibly can. So become untechnical <laughs> uh, in the same way that a non-technical founder should become technical, uh, you know, providing a, a, delivering a technical service um, or software to the market. Um, and two is, you know, the, and that can only go so far. That's partly tongue in cheek, right? The, uh, I think the alignment, right, with everything, and this goes for investors, it goes for leadership team, 
alignment on risk attitude, alignment on values, alignment on you know the outcomes we want is just the most important criterion. And then more so on the leadership side than the investor side, but also that is resilience and grit, right? Just, I want people who've been through hell and I want them to be clear on what they learned through that and have a smile on their face because that learning gave them joy. It produced so much growth for them personally. And they can see the impact through that process that they've got fire in the belly. They're ready to do it again. I think that is, you know, 90% of getting the outcome you want is wanting it. And lastly, touching on investors. How do you think about your selection criteria for investors? Are there any deal breakers for you or things that are table stakes? And how do you think about kind of folding them in onto your entrepreneurship journey after you've onboarded them? It is, you know, I forget who it was that <laughs> made this observation, uh, but m- many times your relationship with investors will outlive, you know, the, the average American marriage. And so, Knowing that's the case and putting that diligence in upfront is just so important, right? Um, because that's the trust, right? Especially investors who are on your board. It's a special set of people that can help govern and help sort of contribute to the quality of decision making at the board level, but also have a healthy understanding of the negative impact that investors or board members can have in randomizing a founder's vision, right? And this is a real art. When the balance is right, it's pure magic, right? And you've got just the right amount of, uh, of feedback and you can spar well, you can come to honest answers to difficult problems and, and you can keep the boat on a consistent heading and make real progress rather than tacking over and over uh, you know, in a way that's not uh, efficient. Now is the time, right? If again, if you've got that fire in the belly and, and you see the opportunity out there, this is a this is not a small change. It's a fundamental reset for the way care is delivered. There are opportunities everywhere in care delivery. I think both commercially and just impact on patients' lives. So, you know, you've got us behind you. Jump in, uh, you know, build your vision. There's nothing stopping you. 